do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up, when you were a kid? Uh, I mean, does, was it just everybody has that standard? You want to be a firefighter or policeman or I don't know, whatever that is. I didn't want to be a, pers- uh, a, a job. I wanted to be a person. Um, there was a specific person that I wanted to be when I grew up, and uh, his name was MacGyver. And the reason I wanted to be him is because he had a, uh, he had a superpower. His uh, superpower was resourcefulness. Uh, and those of you that grew up in the, uh, in, the, in the era of the 80s and were allowed to watch uh, shows like this, they, they were, this was a great show because he was so far ahead of his time, actually. He, didn't, he hated guns. I mean, it's like a perfect show for kids because, you know, all his solutions, he didn't want to hurt anybody. I mean, it was, it was awesome. But he was super resourceful. So this is really cool. Now, I don't know if I can do uh, justice describing it. There's actually a website that describes every solution he ever had to any problem. But it would be stuff like, you know, he would be trying to rescue hostages and there was no way to unlock the vault that they were all trapped in. And so he would find a paper clip and a piece of chewing gum and a fire extinguisher and he had fashioned together a laser and he had free the hostages. And he would do this like two or three times an episode. It was unbelievable. And that's why I love like his mind is the ultimate weapon. It's so good. Like that's such a genius uh, superhero idea. And so I wanted to be MacGyver. Um, I like the idea of they're not being like, they're, they're just being all this like useless junk, but you had the ability to look at it and then envision what it could be and create something out of it. I thought that was amazing. So I'd go into my, uh, my parents' garage, my dad's garage, and, and find a two by four and some nails. And inevitably, I would just make a, a mess. But that was my goal is to be like MacGyver to make something out of just what looked like a mess, looked like nothing. I want you to have that concept in your mind, and uh, we are in part two of the Holy Spirit. This week, you're supposed to preach about Thanksgiving, right? You knew that because we have Thanksgiving coming up Thursday, and so the sermon is supposed to be a Thanksgiving sermon. So here's my Thanksgiving sermon. You guys all need to be grateful. Now let's talk about the Holy Spirit, all right? Holy Spirit part two. Two, and I'm excited about this because I think there's some more uh, valuable stuff for us to, to get into. Holy Spirit Part 2. Now, if you weren't here last week, that's okay. I do think it might be helpful to go back and listen. I'm not trying to promote myself, but it would be helpful to listen to kind of get some of the ground rules. I told you uh, that we were going to be going for about eight weeks, but I would kind of reserve the right to go longer if I needed to because this is a, a huge Topic. I mean, there's just so much in the Bible about it. You could literally take your Bible, open it up anywhere, and you'd probably find some verse or reference to the Holy Spirit. And we like to read verses in the New Testament where the, the, the apostle is talking about speaking in tongues and healing, and we will get to that. But we like to read those and then just kind of jump right in there, and we have no grounding into what these guys were, were actually thinking when they used the word spirit. Because remember, the concept of the Spirit goes all the way back to the very first sentence. It's the second verse in Scripture. It's the first sentence in Hebrew, and you have a reference to the Spirit already. Um, So we are going to try to, it's so important that we lay this groundwork before we talk about things like the miraculous gifts. Because we could jump in there, but we won't know what's going on until we know what they were talking about when we read about the Spirit. So... If you take your Bibles, I will have it on screen, but it's always helpful uh, to follow along in your own text and turn them on or open them up to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. This is where we were last week, and last week we really dug into what the Spirit is, and it's really important that we talk about this week what the Spirit 
does. And both are referenced in this uh, passage. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless, and it was empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. All right, pop quiz. How many of you remember what the Hebrew word for spirit is from last week? Ruach. Yes, ruach. It's a great word. I'm not even getting the harsh sound you need in the back of your throat when you say ruach. That's, that's the word. And you remember that the, the word, the Hebrew word ruach is the same word for spirit and breath and wind. It's all the same word translated with this, this same concept. And we talked a little bit about why that was the case last week. So what we're going to do is we're going to trace this concept, uh, we're going to connect some dots, and then we're going to tie everything together at the end. So I want you to notice, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, all that exists, this is really crucial because people get a little hung up on this, all that exists is not nothing. It's not nothing. Now the earth was formless, and it was empty, and it was dark, and there were waters above which the Spirit was hovering. File that word away because we're going to come back to that at some point in the future weeks, not this week. So what you have is you have formlessness, emptiness, and darkness. Do those sound like good things? No. This isn't good things, right? God is about to make things good, but this isn't good. And the Spirit is there. What's going to happen is the Spirit is going to take the formlessness and he is going to form it. He's going to take the emptiness and he is going to fill it. He is going to take the darkness and he is going to bring light. Some of you are like, well, didn't God do that? He spoke it into existence. Sure, but did you know in the book of Colossians, it says that Jesus created everything? And did you know that in the book of Psalms, Psalm 33, verse 6, it says that the Spirit created everything? Very interesting. Huh, wonder what's going on there. Now, I want you to forgive the comparison, but what's happening is, is there is a pile of nothingness, and what is the Spirit going to do? The Spirit is going to MacGyver something out of it. That's exactly what's going to happen. The Spirit is going to take all this formlessness and this emptiness and this darkness and He's going to form it into this beautiful garden, this wonderful place where the temperature is always perfect and people can run around naked because everything's wonderful all the time and you don't have to farm for a living. You don't have to go to Target to get your groceries. You don't have to, you know, slaughter an animal. You just go up to a tree and you just pick this ripe fruit. It's a beautiful, wonderful garden, perfect for all the senses and the Spirit is going to create that out of this mess and this formlessness and this void. Now, this is really cool. Beautiful garden. Wonderful. So we start out there. That's wonderful. We start out with life. And God says, hey, humans, guess what? I have created the perfect place for you. The place where everybody would want to, when they go on vacation, they would want to live forever. I've created that for you. And you get to live there. And here's what I want you to do. Just real quick, if it's, if it's okay, I want you to listen to me, to obey me, because that will bring this life. Or you can do your own thing, and that will bring death. And what did the people do almost immediately? Death. We'll take death. And God is like, wait a second, did you not hear me? You can stay here forever, and it's perfect, and it's paradise, but you just need to, you need to live my way. You need, to, uh, you need to understand right and wrong by my terms. And people are like, nope, death, we'll do death, we'll do death over here. 
Oh, okay, well, then you can't stay here. Sorry, kicks him out. Now, things start to spiral downward from there. Hebrew history, starting at the beginning, is a series of peaks and valleys, but it's a downward trend. So you start with life, and then by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says that every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. Whoa, that sounds rough. That is bad news. Downward spiral. Where there are some peaks and valleys? Yes, sure. But it's mostly a downward trend and you get to Noah and it's upward. And then you get to the end of the book of uh, story of Noah and it's very much downward. This is the part of the story that nobody talks to their kids about, but it's part of the story of Noah. Where it ends, it's really ugly. And then you've just got this whole narrative flow and eventually God's people end up in uh, captivity in Egypt. And then God says, okay, start over. We're going to start with Moses sends Moses, redeems his people. They have some rough patches through this wilderness, but there's some highs. But it's again, this mostly downward trend. And even Moses, even this wonderful man of God, messes up right at the end. God's like, man, I cannot let you into the promised land with with that attitude. You're going to have to die on this side of the river. And Moses is like, whew, that's a huge bummer. All right. And then he gives the whole nation a speech, an end-of-life speech. He's about to ascend the mountain and die. I don't know exactly how that works. But before he does, an end-of-life speech. And it's in the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And it is epic. It's chapters long. I encourage you to read it. I want to draw your attention to two highlights. I want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. This is what Moses says. This day I call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death. Does that not sound exactly like the garden? Here you guys go. You have life. You have this country. You have this nation. You have this kingdom. Here's life. But you need to live by my terms. You need to define right and wrong the way I define it. Or death and you can do your own thing. You can just live your own way. And what do God's people do? Oh, sure, sure. We're going to do life. And then they immediately choose death. Again, death. Because Jericho, kind of a highlight. But at the very end of the story of Jericho, it's kind of a bummer. And things go bad real quickly. And they never really drive the Canaanites out. And it just gets worse and worse. In fact, check this out. Deuteronomy 31, verse 27. I skipped this at the first service because I forgot. I got too excited. But you guys are going to get it special. Deuteronomy 31, verse 27. And this this is Moses. This is so funny. Moses is like rousing, epic speech. And then he's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go die on the mountain. See you guys. And he's, oh, hey, one more thing. This is how he ends his speech. Listen to this. I know how rebellious, rebellious you are. Hmm, Moses, this is not looking good. And stiff-necked. And that was their idiom for people who just were stubborn and hard-hearted. If you have been rebellious while I was alive, how much more will you rebel after I die? So I want to paraphrase. This is the message version. This is Moses saying, guys, I'm going to go die. You're going to lose it. Do terrible. Peace out. That's the the end of his speech. Come on, Moses. But you know what? Moses was right. The downward spiral continues. When you get through the book of Joshua, they don't ever actually clear the Canaanites out of the land like they were supposed to. And then you get to the book of Judges, and the book of Judges is ugly, ugly, ugly. Do you know how the book of Judges ends? Everything in the book of Judges ends with this verse. And the people just did what was right in their own eyes. The end. That's the last sentence in the book of Judges. It's not great. 
It's not great. Are there some high points? Sure. But it's kind of like if you're, you know, if you if your basketball team is losing by 60 points and one of your players gets a dunk, like it's great, but it's hard to celebrate when you're still down by 58 points with, you know, 30 seconds left on the clock. You're still going to lose. So yes, there are some high points, but overall, it's this downward spiral all the way, and then eventually God starts sending these uh, these prophets and saying, "Guys, Seriously, you have to turn things around or I am going to wipe out the entire nation of Israel and the entire nation of Judah. And people are like, I don't know. I don't know if we can do it. Centuries he does this and finally it all ends up. They they get invaded. They drive off a cliff. Babylon comes in. Things are bleak. Things are bleak. But at each at these crucial pivotal moments, God has said, I set before you life and death. If you live by my terms, you will live. And people are like, death for me. Come on. What is going on? And then you get to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a cool book. It's not one that we read very often because it is a wild ride. It is a crazy book. I'm serious. If you read through the book of Ezekiel, you'll get through a few sentences and you'll be like, that can't be right. God didn't ask him to do that. And you'll have to go back up and read again like, is this translated right? Is this real? It is a wild ride. But in the book of Ezekiel, there's so much crazy stuff. It was written by someone who was in exile. So this is after the the Hebrew people had driven off the cliff and things are as bad. Things are dark and formless and empty. Things are bad. And the Hebrew people are like, what now? And God begins to speak to Ezekiel and he tells them, here's what is now. Here is what is coming. And I want, we're going to read through this uh, chunk of uh, Ezekiel in chapter 37. This section is vaguely familiar to a lot of us. In fact, there will be a song that comes to your mind as we read this section of scripture because I have been singing it in my mind all week long. So there you go. 37 chapter 1. I want you to notice a couple things in, as we read through this chapter. Uh, because I've highlighted them for you so you'll see them. But I want you to see how often the concept of the Spirit in its various forms shows up in this chapter. Verse 1. The hand of the Lord was on me. This is Ezekiel. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were really dry. I'm not always really great with uh, subtle metaphors, uh, but there's nothing subtle about this passage. Like, hey, hey, Ezekiel, I want to show you something. I want to show you my nation, my people, and it's just this big pile of dry, dusty bones. Um, You know, sometimes... Karina and I will be in some social interaction and we'll get done later and she'll be like, well, did you see what they were, the subtext there? And I'll be like, I did not see anything. I have no idea what you're talking about. I wasn't picking up on any of those signals. Like, I just totally missed this stuff. You don't have to be a literature professor to get the metaphor here. God's people are a pile of dead bones. Not difficult. Things are bad. They have followed this downward spiral to death, and now the valley is full of dead, dry bones. God's saying, my people are dead. Spiritually dead, right? From the very beginning, that was the deal. You're going to die if you eat the fruit, and they eat the fruit, and they didn't fall dead. What? They had set themselves down a path of death. It was a dead-end path. 
And God's saying, here you are. <laughs> this is what this looks like to me. Now, of course, these people had full calendars. It's not like they were dead, dead. They had lives. They had jobs. They had families. They had Facebook friends. They drove their kids to tournaments on weekends, all that stuff. When you could do that, they had all of that, but they were dead. There was no life. There's no thriving in them. They had a choice for millennia, and they choose, chose death. Now, I think we need to pause here just for a second because this metaphor can get out of hand a little bit. Because when we think about spiritual death, I think we tend to think about things that are like evil, clearly evil. If you're a child of the 80s like me, like evil was Ozzy Osbourne and pentagrams and smoke machines and bats and stuff like that. You know, that was evil. That, that, that was bad. That was evil, satanic. That was spiritual death. Or, or maybe you're tempted to think of like somebody who's strung out on meth or somebody who's selling their body. I mean, that's spiritual death. Those things are true. I'm not trying to negate that. But I think spiritual death is probably something that we need to explore just a little bit because I think it invades and infects us more than we realize. Um, I think there's a, there's a crucial distinction because remember, back in Judges, at the end of the book of Judges, the, the text says everyone did what was right, but in their own eyes. And this is really important. It wasn't that people were like, I choose evil. It was that people were saying, I am going to determine for myself what is right and wrong. But God said, I am going to decide. I'm going to do what is right in my eyes. Do you see how modern that sensibility is? It's not like we live in a world where people are like, let's pursue evil and death. No, people are just saying, I don't know that I believe God's definitions of good and bad, of right and wrong, of life and death. I am going to make those definitions for myself. And God says, doing that is spiritual death. Redefining right and wrong on your own terms is spiritual death. You don't have to be tattooing pentagrams or going to seances or robbing banks. You have to be redefining right and wrong on your own terms. It's, it's, it's stuff like habits and patterns of thinking, undermining your own contentment with consumerism. It's, it's being selfish but saying, I deserve this. It's hurting others but feeling justified. It's leaning into our weaknesses and our fear and saying, this is good, this is good. That's, the, that's spiritual death. And I think this is valuable to say. The path of spiritual death is more dangerously mundane and ordinary than we have been led to believe. And I think a lot of even disciples laid before them life and death, good and bad, and were like, you know, I think I'm just going to do it my way. Now, some of you may hear me and say, yeah, that's right. We need to get back to the morality of the 50s. I'm not saying we need to go back. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is, is we need to be very careful about whether or not we are trying to define good and bad for ourselves or whether or not we are listening to God's definitions of right and wrong, good and bad, life and death. All right, it's the garden all over again. It's the mountain all over again. Do we choose uh, God on his terms or do we do our own thing and say, this is good, it's good, let's, let's pursue this. Do we choose life or death? All right, let's go back to the bones. Verse three, verse three. So God's people, spiritually dead, they were trying to do what was right in their own eyes and they ended up with a big pile of dry bones. Verse three, he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? And if you're ever in a class 
and your teacher asks you a question that you don't know, you should say exactly what Ezekiel says here. Sovereign Lord, only you know. Only you know the answer. Call your teacher Sovereign Lord. I'm sure that they'll love that. You alone know. Now check out this next part. We're going to read a chunk of text, but this is going to be good. Remember, the word ruach is wind, spirit, and uh, breath. And every time you see it highlighted on the screen here, or every time you see it in the text in noun form, it is the same exact word. Check this out. This is cool. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath, ruach, enter you and I will come and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and I will cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. This, uh, then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse seven, so I prophesied as I was commanded and as I was prophesying, this is such a vivid metaphor, there was a noise, a rattling sound and the bones came together bone to bone and I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath. Ruach, from the four winds, ruach, and breathe, verb form, different word, breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath, ruach, wind, entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off cut off from who cut off from God we're distant therefore prophesy to them and say this is what the sovereign Lord says my people I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them I will bring you back to the land of Israel then you my people will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you from them I will put my ruach in you and you will live I will settle you in your own land and you will know that the Lord has spoken and I have done it declares the Lord God's people are dark and formless and empty. And the same breath of God that existed at the beginning of time is going to come into them and bring them back to life. God's people are dark and formless and empty, and the Spirit is going to do what the Spirit has always done. Now, there's a lot of interesting tidbits we could get into here, like what's this prophecy? What does that mean? What are tendons? What, are, what is skin? What are blah, blah, blah. But the headline is, is that the Spirit wants to bring you back to life. People have followed this downward spiral and God is not willing just to let them go do their thing. When they drive off the cliff, when they run into the dead end, God is still saying, you know what, let's get this right. Let's fix this. Let's get you back up off your feet. Let's get the life and the breath and the spirit and the wind back into you. It's just like the garden. It's just like the mountain of Moses. We are constantly choosing between renewal or decay. We are constantly choosing between life and death. So interesting, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Every kid memorizes that in Bible class, right? That's the fruit of the Spirit. You know what the metaphor is there? You know why I call it the fruit of the Spirit? It's a reference back to the garden. This is what the, the Spirit does. It produces this wonderful garden within God's people. 
It takes us and our death and lifelessness and formlessness and it forms these good things. The Spirit is doing the same thing from page one that it's doing right now. It is bringing the breath back. It is bringing the life back. It is creating order out of disorder. It is forming the formlessness. And then in Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. Think about this. It's so helpful. Every choice we make is a choice toward life and goodness and godliness, or it is a choice toward defining righteousness on our own terms and doing our thing. Every, every choice we make is either to just live our own way or to find the wind of God and let it fill our sails. It's the same thing every step of the way from the very beginning. This is so helpful. It's so valuable. Now, there's so many things we could talk about. Do you see what God or the Spirit is doing? The Spirit is taking things that look useless and formlessness and empty, and he's bringing life to them. I'll sometimes get a desire like, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to make dinner today. I'm going to make dinner for the family. You know, Crane's been working or whatever. And so I'm going to make dinner. And so I go to the cupboards and I'm like, there's clearly nothing here. There's nothing. There's nothing. There's no ingredients. There's no, uh, there's nothing with which you could make a meal. So we have to order pizza. And that's like always my default. And the problem is, is pizza so easy to order. I just do it without really paying very much attention. And Crane will say, well, what do you mean there's nothing? I'm like, there is nothing. Now, I don't know much about baking. I really don't know like uh, how things work. And I got to follow directions very closely. But Corrine will open those same cupboards where I saw nothing. And she will see ingredients. And like 10 minutes later, laid before us on the table, table will be like tiki masala with bas basmati rice and a side of grilled asparagus and I'm just like how did you do that that was magic that was creating something out of the formlessness and the emptiness the spirit is doing the same thing in us the spirit is taking things that look like nothing and making them into something this is so good. Every choice, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, there's tons of things we could talk about, but we're not going to. We're going to save those for a future sermon. But I do want to make one reference. I do want to give you, like, I guess a pastoral word right now. Because a lot of you may be thinking, okay, Patrick, I like the idea. It's, it's, it resonates with me that the Spirit would bring life. I like that. But I don't feel alive. I don't feel that. I don't feel vibrant. I don't feel like I'm thriving. Some of you were like back, you know, eight months ago when things kind of first went on lockdown, it was tough, but we started to work it out and started to feel like maybe things were going to get back to normal and maybe things were moving forward. And then all of a sudden our governor said and came and shut it all down again. And I'm just struggling. I don't know what to do. I don't like, I, I shouldn't feel alive. And I just feel like we're, that God is distant. We've been praying that he would end this thing and God is distant. We'd be praying that he would fill this room and, and it hasn't. And it's just like, I don't, I don't feel alive. I don't feel that. What do I do when I don't feel that? You know that expectations, unmet expectations in any relationship create distance. If you have an expectation for your spouse or for your children or for your parents and they don't meet those expectations, something feels like there's distance. And when we have expectations for God and God doesn't meet our expectations, it creates distance. And so we wonder, where is God? What is God up to? Why has God not, why has he not created something wonderful yet? I don't feel that connection. Waiting is a very real experience uh, by people who long to be made alive by the Spirit. Waiting is a very real experience. My kids will come home from school and uh, my little guy's lunch is like 
10.50 or something like that. And I'm just like, that when he gets home from school at like 3.20, he is starving. You would have thought that like they hadn't fed them all day. And that's a long time for a little guy to go. But the whole family is always just super hungry when they, uh, when they get home from school. And so they'll, you know, they'll just totally, you know, the house looks like a, like a, riot happened in the house because every cupboard's open, every drawer's open, the fridge is open, milk's left out on, I mean, everything is just this, this gigantic mess because they're so hungry. You know, they eat some cereal, they find a snack, and then we get to like five o'clock and they're like, I'm still hungry, I still need food. Like, what are they doing at school? Still need food. And you'll say something like, hey, can you wait just 60 minutes, just 60 minutes, and mom will make you some tiki masala with basmati rice and a side of grilled asparagus. Can you just wait? And the kids, and we've all experienced this, we've all, 60 minutes, I will not last 60 minutes. My life, I will be dead and gone in 60 minutes. I cannot make it. But the truth is, you can, and that mom will come through, and dad will come through. He'll order the pizza, or mom will make the food, or whatever. They will come through. But it feels like it takes forever when we long for that. We, I believe, long for the Spirit of God. We long for that, and it feels like it's taken forever. It feels like it takes so long, and that's an experience of Christians throughout history. But you know what? Right now may feel like darkness, and it may feel like formlessness, and it may feel like emptiness, but you know, we serve a God whose spirit specializes in creating beauty out of those circumstances. That's so good to know. It's so good to know that whatever, if you feel like, I don't feel like life is right right now. Well, you can step into the life of the Spirit. All right, there's more we could talk about. Um, come back next week. The plan as of right now is to talk about the one who will bring the Spirit back. Dun, dun, dun. Who's that? And I'm excited about that as well because there's just so much in Scripture about that this inauguration of the age of the Spirit that, that was to come. It was a promise in the Old Testament. They were looking for it in the Old Testament, and it has come. So we're going to pray, and uh, then we're going to be dismissed. And I implore you, I encourage you to find life by keeping in step with the Spirit.